Hey listeners, welcome to the ninth episode of our Below the Radar conversation series. Today we talk with Michael Robinson, public health practitioner, activist, and LGBTQ community leader. Michael and our host Am Johal talk about how to read the current political times. Enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome everyone. Excited that you could uh, join us again on Below the Radar. Uh, have Michael Robertson here with us, activist, educator, public health practitioner, and many, many other things. Uh, welcome, uh, Michael. Wondering if you can just start by introducing yourself a, a little bit. So my name is Michael. Well, first of all, welcome, 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 and and I'm very uh, I'm not only excited to be in dialogue with you, but very happy that you invited me to be in dialogue with you. Uh, my name is Michael Robertson. I am originally from Camden, New Jersey. Um, Camden is a small inner city across the bridge from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, my trajectory about Camden is that it's hood hood. I can say that because I'm from there. I'm going to create a word that you can't get any hooder than Camden. Camden, Detroit, Baltimore, all of these sort of northeastern, midwestern uh, uh, urban cities have very similar infrastructure, very similar problems. Um, so yeah, I was I I I was born there, reared there, went to school there, graduated from Rutgers University, um, applied to law school twice, got accepted and put on a waiting list, and got tired of waiting and began working for the Camden City Board of Education as a crisis counselor. Then I moved to New York City um, in 1999 with 177 dollars worth of change to do public health, much more uh, concentrated with Black LGBT folk, Black Latino LGBT folk and more specifically the House Ball Baldwin community. Uh, I was blessed enough to create some things and then in 2008 I got fired in a very public and very painful way. Um, one of the great Greek philosophers Montaigne says that philosophy is about learning how to die. And for me there was a death in me and if philosophy was learning how to die then theology is about rebirth and so I went to seminary and got two master's degrees in theology, but not to be a minister at all, but I wanted to place public health in conversation with theology because, because it was my assertion that the theological abomination narrative had direct impact uh, on health disparities impacting black gay men. And so since then, because I've been doing public health for 27 years, since then I've started doing public health as a consultant, and I've also been doing um, race and sexuality and theological work through the Center for Race and Religion and Economic Democracy for the last nine years along with the public health. I am a member of the International Sound Art Collective called Ultrared. Ultrared emerges out of the ACTA movement in 1994 uh, with artists like Dr. Ryan who thought that sound could be an apparatus or an investigative tool particularly as you engage in oppressive structures. More, more specifically at the time looking at the AIDS crisis and IV drug users and, and, and so, and, and, and gay men. Um, and so it's been around for now for 26 years and ultra six projects around the world, one in Berlin, two in London, two in Los Angeles, one in New York City, the one in New York City, my colleague Robert and I oftentimes organize, which is a, a collective called Vogology around the Housewall Baldwin community. So for the last eight years, I've been doing international art and politics through ultra I am an adjunct professor, um, a teacher, a two-day course at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and two courses with Robert Timber at the New School University in New York City. And the last thing I'll say about me is that I, oh, two things. I, I am blessed enough 
to have been to be a cultural consultant for the new FX show Pose about the Baldwin community. And I was just hired four weeks ago as a public health advisor and a community engagement specialist for the New York City COVID-19 contact tracing initiative. So, yeah. Wow, wow. I, I wanted to, to speak with you a little bit about, if you could talk a little bit more about um, ultra, ultra Red, like coming out of the ACT UP um, uh, movement uh, in the U.S., uh, particularly for audiences here in, in Vancouver and Canada who may not be uh, aware of it, uh, it'd be great to get a little bit of background in terms of uh, how long you've been working in, in public health, uh, particularly around HIV AIDS and also other health uh, uh, impacts. So I, I come to Ultra through Robert Simber. I met Dr. Ryan through Robert. Oh my God, this has for about, I think, 11 years. Um, Robert, 2009, Robert was, uh, he had a residency um, at the New School just prior to him becoming an assistant professor there. And uh, Ultra Red was looking at doing some work around the houseball ballroom community. And I had introduced Robert more broadly to a colleague of mine, both of ours, who we call the mother of HIV prevention and community organizing the ballroom community, Arbor Santana. And uh, uh, Robert and Arbert and Dot created the Arbor Santana, no, at the time it was called the Ballroom Oral History Project, looking at sort of the oral history of the house ball community and, uh, and the ability, again, to, to, to use this, arch this archival history as a way to organize. This was, to, so for, for, for Robert and Dot, this was very dialogical to Ultra Red's work because Ultra Red, Ultra Red was becoming less artists but more organizers who use art, right? Robert is absolutely, but he's an organizer. Same thing with Don. But it be, we begin to attract not only people in Ultra Red who they were doing work with, maybe not be official members, but also the communities that Ultra Red began doing work through. So Ultra Red, for instance, have do a lot of work in, in the West Coast in Los Angeles, work around pedagogy, the School of Echoes, but also work around the, migration issues, particularly with migrant workers um, in uh, Law East LA. Um, in, in, in London, uh, they do a lot of work around gentrification and sort of political movements that way. And then again, uh, in, in New York City, we do a lot of work around household ball and community. We, one of the things that's for, so for me, I, I again, I, I became familiar with Ultra Red through Robert in 2009. And around 2012, they asked me because we, Ultra Red was hired by colleagues of ours now, um, an art collector called Arica, which is in Glasgow, Scotland, who was the first non-US artist to be commissioned to do the Whitney Biennial. Um, and they hired Ultra Red to organize their week full of events. And so Ultra Red looked, created a week full of events and called it the Sounds of Freedom, looking at historical art movements, Ultra Red's an art movement in many ways, who used art to, invest, to investigate systems of oppression. And so they got a guy named George Lewis, who was at Columbia University. He did a lot of work around jazz. Um, and he did some, uh, some, some, he did a protocol around jazz and electric guitar and just some performances. Uh, Fred Moten, one of the premier scholars around the black radical aesthetic tradition. They also got him to do some work around that same thing. He did some, he did a protocol around that and did some performances 
And then it got the people, I can't think of their names at the moment, who are pivotal in sort of the organizing, the creation of the New York, New York poet movement in New York City. Um, and they did some work around that. And they asked me to be, uh, to do the work around ballrooms, to do a protocol around ballroom. And so the first protocol for me was that um, the House of Ballroom community, being a community that's predominantly Black, Latino, and LGBT, was not going to perform at the Whitney. Um, partly was because one, the expectation for us is to always just perform, not only because we're, we're ballroom, but also because we're Black and Latino as well as LGBT. The other thing for me was that particularly in a space like the Whitney, who in his everyday operation doesn't offer opportunity or space for marginalized, particularly class marginalized communities to be involved, that ballroom. But I was always a fanatic, a fan of Cornel West. And I remember listening to one of his lectures in 2006 on YouTube, um, I forgot who was honoring, and he talked about this notion of philosophy and freedom. And so I said, um, for me, instead of performing, ballroom has something to say. So I constructed a concentric circle for a minute, got nine ballroom leaders um, to sit in a circle, uh, and then we created concentric circles surrounding them, and about a hundred and a hundred plus people came to listen to the conversation. Because one of the things, one of the protocols of ultra is that we do listening sessions, right? We either use audio or, or video. Uh, the video stuff really came to me, but uh, to to again to, to to engage in dialogue for other folks to 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 be able to listen to, and so had these folks sit around these nine ballroom folks. And I facilitated a conversation called um, uh, 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 the, what did I call them? The uh, labors of oppression and intersection labors of, intersected labors of oppression, right? So I asked the, 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 the non-borrowing people, for instance, the trans folk in the circle in the borrowing community, I said to them, what does it mean to be a femme queen? A femme queen is a term we use for trans women in the house ball community. And so, you know, they will respond to it and ask the gay men the same thing. What does it mean to be a butch queen in a house ball community? And butch queen is just a term we use for, for gay men in the house ball community. So they responded. Then I took it a layer up. They had no idea that's what I was doing. And I asked them, what does it mean to be part of the house ball community within the larger black LGBT community. So without them knowing where I wanted them to go, they began to talk about systemic classism because historically there has been classism over and against the house ball community coming from a stemming from the larger black LGBT community. So they began talking about that. So then I asked the next layered up question. What does it mean to be part of the black LGBT community within a larger black community? So they began to talk about systemic homophobia. So then I asked the question, what does it mean black in America? They began to talk about systemic racism. So the fundamental question for me was then, well, through all of these intersected labors of oppression, because oppress, oppressions are laborious, right? They're not static. They're working with one another systemically and intentionally. I said, so through, through all of these labors of oppression, what does it really mean to be human and free? So they took a pause. And then this, this outpouring of dialogue that was emotive and everything began to happen. So after that happened, we, we, we took a break, took everyone, including those who was listening, so 100 plus people, to the back of the room, had big poster boards up, and I asked um, the, those who came to listen, not the 
following folks, just three propositions. What did you hear? What did you see? What did you feel? And the kind of generative sort of formations that came out of those three propositions were amazing. This then opened up space for both Don through Robert Ultra-Red, but also Erica to say to me, oh, Michael, we think we want to do more work with you. So that that began my relationship with Ultra-Red. Now, when you uh, uh, um, are engaging in these art practices and uh, community organizing, and then all of a sudden you kind of pry a door open into, say, public health agencies, clumsy, bureaucratic structures that are looking to um, uh, get into communities to share information, get information back, how do you um, deal with uh, moving across and being inside of that system uh, all of a sudden like that when you pry open that space all of a sudden you're in this whole zone of a bureaucracy and a world that speaks in different languages that um, has different tones in terms of its bureaucratic inertias uh, these types of things um, um, how did you navigate that context that's but to me that's the beauty this is an interesting that's the beauty of being both gay so it's gay men right but also doing HIV prevention because it oftentimes in the early days of AIDS movement, most of the people who were doing the work were artists, right? When I think about, and let me talk about specifically black gay men, when I think about, let me back into that, when I went to Union uh, to get my first master's in my MDiv, I got a lot of pushback from professors that said that I was not lifting up enough theologians. Uh, and I said, well, you name some theologians who theologize around the intersection of my blackness and the gayness, I'll lift them up. They thought I was lifting up too many artists, too many poets. But it was the poets, it was the artists who were also organizing. So there was the Essex Tenfield and the Joseph Bean and the Santo Saints who were talking about being black and gay in a relationship to God, but also in relationship to the AIDS epidemic. So for me, it, for, for being part of the, the, the LGBT community, both being black and being in uh, uh, a large LGBT community, it, it was, it's just an easy, it was an easy, what's the word I want to use? It, it's, the, the tension that you are sort of uh, talking about or describing, um, it just felt that, that it was just an, an easy, it was a very easy sort of um, uh, unfolding, right, if you will, right? And so, if you think about, let me back into that. It's so interesting to have Tony Fauci to be in this moment around COVID because Tony Fauci was also pivotal during AIDS, right? Absolutely. And so he became an ally of the community because ACT UP beat him, if you will, into submission, right? Taught him, right? Taught him how to do what he does now. And so this, so it, I'm describing sort of the same thing. Yeah. So for, for me, I don't, I, I didn't find it difficult. That's number one. But number two, I also think that being part of the house wall balling community and having to do work around the community that I belong to, it was also a very easy thing to, to say that if we are going to, uh, let me say it differently. It was also an easier thing to say that if, if we are going to create interventions to address the HIV concerns, of this community that is art practices, right? It's, it's theological, or his art practices are both theological, political, 
formulations around freedom and joy and all these other things have everything to do with the way we deal with public health. Now, that doesn't mean there was not a public health in relation to HIV. It does not mean that we didn't get a lot of pushback. Absolutely, I got a lot of pushback. Uh, when I first um, met you back in, in January, you also talked about um, this um, uh, phenomenon, particularly in, in, in New York, of uh, Black men being shunned from the church and, and Ballroom providing a, a kind of family, a, a support system around which, which was, wasn't really being identified by public health agencies either. Yeah. I mean, and so some of that is a historical conversation. Yeah. I think that is beginning to shift now. Um, but our, part of the reason I went to Union Theological Seminary was for that very, that very thing, that, um, that this, the, the theology of abomination has such a direct impact on health disparities impact in black gay men, but that public health, its limitation around crisis management was not saving communities. And so that in which I desire to talk about, that in which I heard community members talk about public health in many ways said that's religious, right? And that there's no, there's very little space for that. So that's part of the reason why I went to, to seminary. But ballroom in and of itself, to, to your point, ballroom in and of itself, um, I think not only provided a, a, what I call a space for a, a, a political literacy, even though we didn't think that's what it was doing, but it also created a space of 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 a, a theological mattering. You know, when you when you when you've been told that the very essence of who you are is the antithesis to God, and God for Black folk have been the center of our freedom movement. It then says that you are not part of the lexicon of the Black struggle for freedom, but it also says that uh, that that. That, that that in which you are desiring to have this relationship with God, it, you have no access to. And so Baldwin, for me, created that space. And I think it creates that space for a lot of both Black, Latino, LGBT folk. Even though, even though, um, even though that there's not a lot of attention paid to that, there's not a lot of folk who are sort of articulating that, I'm a believer that that's exactly what it's doing. I, I'll give you a good example. You know, I uh, am a consultant with the HEAT program, which is in Brooklyn, New York. And one of the things that we do is an intervention called Many Men, Many Voices, which in its original format, it is an HIV prevention, behavioral change intervention that I helped to nationally diffuse for the Center for Disease Control from 2000 through 2007. So almost every uh, community-based organization in New York, in, in the United States, that does work around uh, Black gay men has to do that or that that intervention, and so I facilitate that for the Heat program. But I do it mostly a lot of the times. I use Union Theological Seminary to do the intervention around Black young Black gay young Black gay men um, at the seminary. The very space that created pain is providing the space to reconcile that pain. Mm -hmm. So. Now, I know that you collaborate uh, a bunch with my, our mutual friend, Alessandra Pomarico and Free Home University um, and, and with the Musagetis Foundation. So you've been uh, coming up to Toronto uh, quite a bit and, and Guelph and, and other places. But I, I think given um, um, your background and story, uh, it would be great to get some of your reflections in terms of 
how we can read the present political moment. There's so much going on with a pandemic, with Black Lives Matter, with uh, Trump being president and all of these uh, things. I think that there's a lot of um, a sense of people being overwhelmed by the present political moment and how to orient oneself uh, with all of these multiple uh, uh, crises on top of crises that already existed before. And I know that's a big question, but I wanted to throw that out to you to help us maybe think through that. You know, I, I, I remember having initially a conversation um, with one of my great colleagues whose shoulder I stand on named Kwame Banks. Uh, Kwame um, comes out of Philadelphia as well, and he is the very first person I saw do sort of uh, ballroom and also community organizers are intersecting the both. And we we're talking about this moment and I, I said that I'm, I'm a believer that the universe is asking us to take a cosmological pause. This is what the pandemic has done. So this part of the reason why we're paying such a, so much attention to this moment because we all are asked to take a pause, right? And so in this pause, I am a believer that there are three propositions that the universe is putting forth for us to to, to sort of count, uh, to, to contemplate on. One is a philosophical one. The philosophical question is, who do we desire to be? So when we move out of this moment, as we're moving out of this moment, who do we desire to be now? Right? It's not just who we're going to be, but who is it that we desire to be? The second one is a theological uh, proposition, which is how do we desire to love more expansively? If we have, if this moment to me has not taught us one thing is that the notion of communities coming together um, and in, in an invoice in the ethic of love, if that's not the most important thing, then I think we've missed the moment. And the third one is a political proposition, um, which is how do we begin to politically organize differently, moving away from our right not to die and moving towards the right to live. Those are two separate things. I think oftentimes marginalized communities uh, are engaged in the political trajectory around, we deserve not to die. That's a different sentiment than saying, I claim my right to live. And so for me, so this is, so that to me, those three things, I think the problem this moment is asking us to think about. It's very interesting that uh, here we are in a pandemic that is illuminating, right? All of sort of the, the brokenness of our systems. And that, I would speak from a, a particular house ball lens, and that next year is the 40th anniversary of GRID. So between two pandemics are we situated in. Now think about the, the 1980, Ronald Reagan becomes president um, and he, he ushers in this move away from Barry Goldwater's ultra conservative Republican, right, connected to less government, right? And more towards this new neoliberal project of the Republican Party, right? Connected to global capitalism, the deregulation of banks. Uh, Reagan was very voiceless around the war on drugs, the disposable bodies, so disposing black and brown bodies who were implied in this one drug into mass incarceration, but he was very silent around the AIDS epidemic. Again, disposable bodies, most of those who were being infected were gay men. 
And so here we are 40 years later, Trump being president, and there's a move towards away from the neoliberal Republican connected to big bank, big monies, more towards a Trumpism that's really around fascism and another pandemic emerges. And so in, in, so in between those things, I think the illumination of, of particularly in the US con context, white supremacy, this moment of George Floyd, um, is something I think we, we have to sit back and reflect on. What, what are we being called to do? Right? What are we being called to ask? I, I think I was listening to a, a woman in my, my body on MSNBC today, and she talked about Black Lives Matter as a, as a movement may have been contextualized or concretized in 2012 in relationship to Jayron Martin. But the movement around mattering of Black Lives has always been. It's just at this moment right now, it's asking us to think differently. And part of what has happened is that it's allowed not only this sort of global kind of protest, but it's intersectional in, in its reach, where you're having particularly white folk in relationship with black folk, in relationship with indigenous folk, in relationship with Latinos around the, the border wall, um, having this sort of conversation. So. I think that, that, that this is one moment. It's, it could be one of those it's a moment of watershed. This could be a watershed moment. Uh, how we then again address it, how we then again approach it, um, I think there's a difference. But I, I have said for a long time that Trump is an absolute blessing. And I know that sounds uh, uh, antithetical to progressive talk, but he's a blessing. And why he's a blessing, because if Hillary had became president, though I voted for Hillary Clinton, if she became president, we would have still lived in the false pretense that we live in a, a post-racial society. Obama became president. And so there's a, we don't need to have a conversation around race. Right? Um, we would have thought we would still live in this notion that um, the next hurrah around civil rights was marriage equality. But then Trump becomes president, and his sort of uh, uh, his attack, particularly on trans lives and the military, particularly in the military, and and health and, and in engaging sort of these things, blocking health wellness for trans folk, have illuminating that that's not the case. And so, um, because of Trump, and this is not a you know a, a supporter from because of Trump, that you're seeing folk who oftentimes have never been engaged in a dialogue of support. So black, I've seen black men, black men talk about black trans women's lives in a certain kind of way. I, I've seen a, a black folk talk about uh, in support of, of, the, of, of the immigration issues that a lot of Latinos are, uh, are, are, for, are faced or forced to confront in the US, which has never had, never really occurred in such a kind of way. You're seeing this relationship between uh, um, uh, folk, in particular in relation to health disparities and access to health that is in conversation with, with poor black folk that you've never really seen before. And I think this moment of being Trump being president sort of caught that all together. Had, again, had it been Hillary, we were still living in the pretense and nothing was broken. And, and the last thing I'll say about that, and this COVID moment has illuminated the, 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 
all of the cracks um, that are that has been part of sort of our capitalist system. So as we're speaking right now, we're a few days before uh, July the 4th. When we um, put this out in, in public, it'll be a few days after, but you'd mentioned you'd been doing some, some reading around the state. <laughs> so I, 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 when we were, when we first got on, I started talking about some things, did not know we were not recording, but I, I talked about um, a great colleague of ours, Alessandro Pomerico who is the founder and director of the Free Home University in Lecce, Italy. And she, she travels between both New York City mostly and Lecce, Italy, who I uh, started doing work with in 2015 through the Musa Gettys Foundation. Met her through my colleague, Robert Simber uh, of Otorin. And um, so she, she, she's part of a collective called Echoversity. And they do these monthly calls and she thought that um, that the moment, particularly around the George Floyd moment, was calling for them to engage in the conversation around race, global sort of blackness, if you will. Um, and she asked me to help her to articulate that conversation, but also to, to, to host the event. And so she got a colleague of her in Australia, uh, who is born in Kenya, who does work in um, Germany, um, to be in the dialogue. She also got an artist and an educator named Jaul Son from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I brought in my colleague and friend, Dr. Charlene Sinclair, who is the founder of the Center for Race and Religion and Economic Democracy. And what I realized um, that the day that we did it on, on last Sunday, June 28th, was LGBT Pride in New York City. Not only the LGBT Pride, and because of COVID, we can't celebrate the way that we normally celebrate. And so not only was it Pride, it was the 50th anniversary of the very first Pride that happened in the 1970. I thought about that, that this conversation we were having was sandwiched between Pride, but also tomorrow is the 4th of July. And some of the hypocrisy around this American project of democracy. What a moment to be able to talk about that. So I started the conversation and I read something from Frederick Douglass, who had given a speech in 1852 in Rochester, New York, uh, entitled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Um, and then I read, as today, uh, President Trump is giving a speech and um, and has a rally in front of Mount Rushmore. Uh, Mount Rushmore um, is the mountain in which four presidents are carved into the Black Hills Mountains of the great Sioux people. Sort of the contradiction in that. And so I wanted to, and if I could, read something from Frederick Douglass, something from the great chief of the Soy people, and uh, sort of contextualize this moment. So Frederick Douglass writes, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, 
your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgiving with all of your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. And you place that in conversation uh, with the great chief of the Sioux Nation who just put out today, he said, nothing stands as a greater reminder to the great Sioux Nation of a country that cannot keep a promise or treaty than the faces carved into our sacred land of what the United States calls Mount Rushmore. We're now being forced to witness the lashing of our land with pomp, arrogance, and fire hoping our secret lands will survive. This brand on our flesh needs to be removed and I am willing to do it free of charge to the United States by myself if I must. Visitors look upon the faces of those presidents and extol the virtues that they believe make America the country it is today. Lakota see the faces of the men who lied, cheated, and murdered innocent people whose only crime was living on the land they wanted to steal. The United States of America wishes for all of us to be citizens and a family of their republic, yet when they get bored of looking at those faces, we are left looking at our molesters. We are the ones who live under the stars of those who wronged us, while others have the privilege to look away and move on. We cannot. When I, when I can remove those faces from my land, I believe I would not be alone. And so for me, those two sentiments speak very freely of what this moment meant. One in 1852 and the other in 2020. What to the great sin, the very first sin of America, again, is the genocide of indigenous people in dialogue with the bondage of African people. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. It's been wonderful to speak with you and uh, really look forward to your uh, visit to uh, Vancouver when the border situation uh, allows it probably sometime uh, early next year, but look forward to uh, keeping this conversation going and, and thank you so much for the amazing work that you do in so many different places. And thank you for inviting me. And I, listen, so I'm looking forward to, I have never in my life been to Vancouver, so, when COVID happened and I said, oh my God, does this mean I can't go to Vancouver? Um, so I'm very excited being not only to come to visit Vancouver, but to be in dialogue with the wonderful people that I know are doing such great work there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Michael Robinson for joining us on this episode of Below the Radar. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Stay in the loop with Below the Radar by following us on Twitter and Facebook, and be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. As always, I want to thank the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Paige Smith, Fiorella Pinios, Kathy Fang, and Jackie Obanga. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and a special thank you to our listeners. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. Mm -hmm.